Texas Business Minds, presented by the Business Journals of Texas. Brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas. In this download, San Antonio Business Journal Editor-in-Chief Ed Arnold explores the culinary scene with chef and Emeryn Rye Hospitality CEO Kevin Fink, whose team is opening Pullman Market later this year in the historic Pearl. So I am here today with Kevin Fink, notably of Emmer and Rye, but of many, many other restaurants and also a well-regarded chef and restaurateur here in Central and South Texas. Kevin, thank you so much for being with me today on Texas Business Minds. I'm excited to be here and kind of talk through the things that we're doing. So we started Emmer and Rye just over eight years ago, going on nine. And it was funny, we came from Tucson, Arizona, and we were really running a restaurant group there at the time. And I was over multiple restaurants and wanted to just get back to kind of cooking and realize that you kind of had to start it from scratch to get there because I was slowly turning one over into being more local. Mm -hmm. And whenever you do those things, and this will bring us to where we are, if you have a habit already in this restaurant that I was running, that like the main one of the group, which was called Zona 78, was Mm -hmm. regional Italian, really still American, but like a lot of from scratch stuff. And I was slowly converting it over into things that I was very passionate about, which was local sourcing and cheese sure. making and fermentation and, and so what put we your personality in. into it, right? More of your personality. Yeah, well, of course, it, right. right. Yeah. And, and restaurants are one of those few things, one of those few businesses where your personality really does, it's like upfront for everybody. Right, right, um, right. Which for better or worse of that too. It depends uh, on the personality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but once you get to something like Chili's or Olive Garden, like that has right, right. to programmed out of that, right? But I'm sure it started something different. So it's a business model that when it's really small is completely different than medium or large. And I think our relationship with that also changes versus like a clothing brand. When you go into a boutique clothing brand, you're not necessarily separating that from like going to Hugo Boss for quality. You're oh, this is a great quality thing. I'm willing to pay more because this is from this independent producer here but I'm not looking at all the background of like where the shipping comes from and all those versus in restaurants. I think it's on full display. Right. That makes sense. That makes good sense. That makes good sense. And I mean, Emmer and Rye, it was one of the first restaurants when I moved here six years ago that people told me, Oh, you're going to Austin. You should try it. It has done so incredibly well. So it sounds like what you really were motivated by was almost like back to basics. Like you wanted to cook again, right? And you want, you didn't want to think so much about managing a restaurant or dealing with the group. So you came to Austin and you sort of founded that again. And what was your philosophy when you started it up? What was your viewpoint? So the whole goal of it was to try and it's funny as I'm actually really systems driven, even okay. though I, I kind of like pretend that I'm not, or don't want to be. <laughs> sure. or, but the idea of it was when you're working with a small farm, which is what we wanted to do or something that is regional, it changes so seasonally and it can even right. change. Like if it's rain the night before, or if it got really cold and there's this beautiful part of nature that is very alive and is constantly changing And so I wanted to create a restaurant that really allowed for that to happen and celebrated that as opposed to most of the relationships are like, I need the broccoli exactly like this. And I don't care where it comes from. I care that I have it all year round because my guests love broccoli and they need to have broccoli. And as Americans, we've been really privileged for that for a really long time, which is 60, 70 years ago was unheard of. Seasonality of produce is just, it's almost an afterthought unless you're trying to do something special the way that you are. 
Yeah, and I think that if you grow up that way, which you really get back into food of why that became so important. It became so important because so many people were at war. And when you're away from your family, the number one thing that is the most important to you is time with them, which is really reasonable. And so that prioritized over all these other things and convenience became, again, very, very important to everybody. And so expectations and not, you know, going through that. And truthfully, we're in a time like that again, while it may not be war, convenience in our time is a really high priority for everybody because there's just not enough of it, as I think we all recognize. Right. That's really fascinating way to think about it, too, which is like it's also sort of a part of the standardization of food, right? Like meaning America has a traveler mentality, right? And so the idea that I can get the same thing 700 miles away from where I left and that there's a consistency across all of our food. And I don't mean that just like across location to location of a big chain, but across the whole spectrum of the restaurant world, there's a certain, people are surprised if you can't get something, even when it's out of season, no matter where you are in the country. And that's become part of our mentality, right? It's not just a sort of you know, availability, but a standardization, right? We do not expect, and you use broccoli as an example, I don't expect broccoli to taste different in Florida than I do in Washington state, even though naturally they should, right? That was something that you wanted to bring to the restaurant was a sort of an ability to flow with your ingredients. Is that the right way to sort of think about it? Well, and I think of food in a way where, again, systems, inherently something that is consistent, while we may not want to say this, is acknowledging that, yes, it is not the worst of that thing, but it is also not the best of that thing. Right, (laughs) right, right. right. And that's what I wanted to wipe, right? We're not looking for average. We're looking for something that is great. And to hit something that is great takes a lot more managing. But I think that what happened in food particularly is the systematization out of it of people, right? So now you go and there's Everyone knows that there's going to be robots and probably AI will work in fast food faster than anything else. It's already happening in order taking. You've seen all these chain restaurants really give a script to everybody of what they need to say. And the reason why they're doing that is then inherently they've kind of like lost trust in their employees. Right. And so we kind of went the opposite way. We said, let's challenge everybody. Let's make it a job where they have to think. Let's make it a job where they're growing. Let's make it a job where they're continuing to grow their skill set of what they're doing. And if we do that and make it as hard as possible, their focus will actually be even more because you'll get a bunch of people that really care about it. And that was, I think, the magic of where when we started was, yes, we had great quality ingredients, but what we had more than anything is we had a team of people that were so excited to push the boundaries every single day. That makes all the difference in the world. We can talk about the ingredients all that we want. And obviously that's key and important and you can't do it without it, but you certainly couldn't have done it without your people. So that's a good follow-up though. How do you keep that spirit rolling nine years in to a very successful restaurant that's become its own institution? That's got to be a challenge, right? It's hard to be revolutionary when you're considered a standard bearer sometimes, right? Yeah, it's a great question. And we've done it in a lot of other ways where we went and we opened Henbit. And with Henbit, what was so important for us was we were able to take some of our partners that were smaller, maybe equity partners in what we did and make them much larger equity partners in a smaller business that had potentially a higher upside of some of those things, but the build out wasn't as much, right? And uh, then we opened TLV where we helped fund another really successful food truck 
operator who then came into the group and we had a platform that they were able to do. So again, we're trying there. Hestia is where we really brought the kitchen out into the dining room. And it's like this 20 foot live fire. It ended up, I think, being the largest grill in the United States, although that was not our intention of it. (laughs) Just Um, kept going and going and going. (laughs) Or we just were like, let's build this thing like this. This is how big we have. And we really came from, we didn't have a grill at Emmer that was like this. And we missed that kind of like flavor that comes from stuff like that. Yeah, the big grill work. Yeah. And the through fair of this is, of course, like finding things in most business opportunity that was walls, right? That you couldn't do, right? That they were barriers to those things and kind of questioning why those showed up as being there. And then you get to the last three and then we'll get to Pullman, which so Kanji became a space where, you know, my partner Tavel Bristol-Joseph, when he moved to, to Texas, he was like, you know, there's not a lot of spaces that make me feel immediately like welcomed as me, which is inherently a statement that you never want to hear one of your partners say. And so Kanji became kind of a coming from that is a a space that made a lot of people feel welcome and has been really successful in that and continue to push the boundaries of, yeah, you're welcome, but it's, we're not going to just give you what you expect as well. Cause truthfully, that's not the thing that stimulates our group as much. Right, right, right. Um, right. And Ladino came again from from our other partner, Berti, who captivated us with that's how you eat. And also, truthfully, like vegetarian grain forward diets are something that, at least for me, the older I get, it's harder for me to process the same amount of beef that I used to eat. You just can't, right? So I need to find other options and stuff like that. And this is a great way to not compromise that at all. Like you go in there and you have an incredible meal and you don't miss the fact that you like weren't eating a 12 ounce steak. Kevin Fink joining us. Next, he shares what attracted him to Pearl when Texas Business Minds continues. At Texas Mutual, we work vigilantly to investigate and prevent workers' compensation insurance fraud, which has resulted in over $13.5 million in restitution and recoveries for Texas businesses since 2018. Learn how your business is better at texasmutual.com slash fraud. Well, it's interesting, too, because Lindino is, for those that you know, aren't familiar, and because I'm here in San Antonio, I'm familiar, it's got a Mediterranean sort of flair to it, if you will. And I don't know that I would characterize it as a strict Mediterranean restaurant, but it has a, it sort of takes from that vegetarian, as you said, grain forward sort of heritage of Mediterranean cooking and really puts all of that forward. And so it really is a unique restaurant in Pearl where it is. Pearl has become such a wonderful culinary destination over these last several years with the Culinary Institute actively there and so many wonderful chefs planting a flag there. It's become such an obvious place if you want to get great meals in San Antonio to drop yourself in. Everything from a really good burger to a really good steak in a French place and Mediterranean food and everything in between has really, really come into its own over these last few years. And and it pushed its way. And that's the other thing that um, I think is important. It pushed its way through the pandemic in such a unique way that when it came out the other side, it was stronger than it was before, which is a remarkable thing for the culinary destination after the pandemic. Most had a more of a struggle. Tell me a little bit about what attracted you and your partners to Pearl and what that experience has been like working with them. Pearl and really their holding company Silver, right? So right, Silver right. is the one that I think allows them to continue to have this vision. And, and Kit and Angie, I think, really kept that going. And now Bryant and Jordana are um, you know, huge pieces along with Bill Shun. There's so many people Absolutely, in the yeah. who like really make sure that 
um, Pearl is constantly innovating. And I think that that's the key there, right? They're not sitting on their laurels at all. And what allowed us to be interested in going up there and really what's funny is Ladino came from this too, but we were walking the Samuels glass building, um, just seeing what was available at Pearl because we're always looking at, you know, opportunities, kicking the tires of sorts. And I walked into this building and I was like, there's an energy here. Like this feels amazing. It's so special in here. And at the time I was asking Elizabeth Forso, like who was walking around, like, what are you going to do with this? She said, well, I don't really know. Kicked around a couple ideas. And I said, I think it should be a market. She said, well, maybe that's one of the ideas that we've kicked around. I'll get back with you. And like maybe six months went by. And I followed up with her and I said, hey, I've been thinking about that market a lot. Like, what do you think? And she said, well, why don't you put something together? I'm really interested in it and I'll present it to the group and we'll see. And then they came down to Austin. We brought them through kind of our ethos of cooking and why and sourcing. And then we ended up really looking at the business model of it. And I think the interesting thing for me that really drove this to need a market was COVID, right? right? And, you know, it was kind of a really hard time to be a restaurateur. It was a great time to be in in retail. (laughs) (laughs) Not from a dynamics of being scared about things, because that was real, right? I mean, they were right. frontline workers. 100%. You didn't know about health then, but from an economic model, they were much more stable. And I think what it made me realize was the valuation of food is on access to food. Yes. The service of how you receive that food is the thing that will fall away the fastest when we are in a space that we're, you know, whether, right. yeah, totally. whatever event happens, right? Right, right. And that was, hey, as a restaurant trailer, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, um, for, sure. for sure. And, you know, there without government assistance, I wouldn't be here talking to you because we were successful going into the pandemic, but the pandemic, yeah. you know, I mean, remember on the anniversary of my dad's passing, we had to tell the majority of our, team, all of our hourly team members that basically government assistance in unemployment was going to be better for them than what we could provide to them because we could only provide that to them too for a very short period of time. And then we ultimately would have to either close our doors or get a loan to stay open. And this was before any of those programs were really out there. And we decided to keep on all of our salaried team members at a burn rate that, you know, without any assistance, we probably were eight or nine months. I was going to say, it couldn't be a year. It couldn't be a year. Yeah. And then we really started thinking about, well, the access to what you get quality wise at most traditional supermarkets is not the same as what I can get in a restaurant. It's just not even close. Right. Right. And why, what's the point of that? Why as a consumer, all of a sudden the best quality stuff, all of a sudden the most local items, all of a sudden the things that are what we really want at the heart, if you're going to ask a consumer, do you want this thing that is more consistent? Or you want this thing that is better? Most people are all going to choose the better. It's just access right. to that. It's not there. Right. And so we started really working into understanding the problems of that, which there are many. It's not as simple well, as it sounds. That's what I was going to follow up with you because supplying a restaurant, I mean, we talked about this as part of your philosophy, which is, look, if a particular ingredient is not available because of frost or because it had a bad, you're, the farmer you work with has had a bad crop and he's just got a limited amount or you're not very good this time around for whatever reason in the world, there's a million different reasons. 
how do you, I imagine sourcing for your restaurants versus sourcing for a market has got to be really, really different. Do you know what I mean? It's, I mean, don't get me wrong. I know that you're buying a lot for your restaurants, but I would imagine that you really are having to, to think about supply in a really different way than you have before. Yeah, very much so. I would be lying to you if I told you we've got it figured out. Uh, <laughs> I think it's an improv game, man. <laughs> I think it's an improv game. <laughs> but, you know, things that it also, because of that scale, allows to change fundamentally some of the farmer's spaces, right? Like, so for example, like we have a lot of small farms that we work with where we buy substantial amounts from them, but it will never be enough to actually make them have a living right. versus a market is. Even one market can be for a small group of of small farmers there. And then if you really think about where you get deep into this, if you can get them to a scale to smaller medium, then shift the market where now their accessibility shows up for uh, some of these really big brands, you can fundamentally change people's lives. And it's not that you're doing this, you're just getting them steps, right? Because right now the step for agricultural farm is like, you go to a farmer's market and you sell to restaurants, or you get all of your certifications and you sell to like a central marketer in a Whole Foods. But the in-between of that is a huge gray area that's really hard to do. And that's where, you know, you're probably not used to doing that step and you have to really re-leverage yourself unless you're doing it in a really great way. Yeah. And for us, we're trying to take on a lot of that liability in between. I'll give you the example of animals. So Now, most people are used to buying and having their animals butchered and then slaughtered and and brought into cups, right? Because not that many people are buying a half a steer or a quarter of a steer. Right, right. But also animals don't grow in eight ribeyes. So then as a rancher, you're like solving this equation of how do I sell this entire animal at the same time? Through cuts, right? And pricing is the easiest way to do that, which is why your ribeyes are $45 now for Wagyu, let's say, and the ground beef seven. Same animal, but we have valued that different. So for us, we're going to buy that whole animal and we're going to have a butcher who actually knows what he's doing, who's butchered all over the world, who's going to be behind that counter. And we're going to still have all those basic cuts, but we're going to have some really cool, unique cuts that you can try. You're going to know what that animal has fed off of its entire life, really where it was ranched out of, how long we've had it for. And then beyond that, you're going to get like, for instance, the ground's going to go into our burger or it's going to go to our Italian restaurant, right? So we're already solving that. The back leg will take through a bandsaw and marinate and then grill over mesquite wood for like our taco spot, right? Which is just incredible. It's like the best use of that. Like there's not a better thing that you could do there. It's so good. The fat the pork fat and the beef fat that we'll have will render and then use for tortillas that we're going to make there. So you'll get like all the tortillas instead of just like standardized pork larder that you bring in in tubs, right. you're getting from local animals. And in a way where even economically, it's not that much more just because it is accessible. And I think that to me is the, what we're really reaching for here is that how do you make a market that is higher quality but not just exclusively for the elite. And that's what we're going to take on. We're going to have a model where it's what we call as good, better, best, which is, I think, a a grocery term. But Mm -hmm. under good, the product quality should still be best in that grocery area. The price of it will be something you can get more every day. Under better, maybe it's a meal that you're cooking for your in-laws. And under best, it's an anniversary thing, right? 
there are different times that we all want that as consumers. We already find that in our normal grocery, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to buy a different standing rib rack for Christmas than I would buy if I just wanted one in the middle of the year, right? I'm going to spend a little extra time getting myself a good cut when I want it. And that makes perfect sense. So it's going to be in the Samuel Glass building. That's like about, if I remember from the news reports, like 40,000 square feet of space yeah. in that thing. Yeah. So you've yeah. got a lot of, you got a lot of interior finish out work to do, I would have bet. And building a market is no small job. That's a big one. That's, that's a lot. And you're building restaurant space as well within. What are you guys thinking as far as, as turnaround? I know you've been working on this for years. So when do you think we're going to get to open this thing? Well, so we have a really good general contractor partner, Joris, who's been fantastic with it. Be- and I would love to say that I'm not going to give you an exact date because oh, of course not. Yeah. But don't think, do that. Uh, <laughs> I don't get you in trouble. Middle of, middle of this year, we will okay. be open. So it's coming sooner rather than later for sure. That's good stuff. I remember when our office was in Pearl for many years, and I remember when that Samuels Glass building had forks lift parked in it. So I'm very excited to head in there and see what you make of it. It is very exciting. And also just, I don't think there's anyone else in San Antonio who is there are lots of good purveyors of, of meat and vegetables all over the city, but what you're proposing is really unique to, to San Antonio, and I'm really excited to see how it comes. Thanks so much for doing it. No, it's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking the time and chatting, and I look forward to showing you, you know, when we get a little closer, bringing you in the building and, and uh, showing you all the things. Can't wait. I'll drag a photographer with me. We'll have a great time. Sounds great. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. Thank you for downloading Texas Business Minds, presented by the Business Journals of Texas. Brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas. Texas.